I want to start by just giving you a little quote. Um, this quote came across recently. It's a Tibetan proverb. It says this, everything rests on the tip of motivation. Have you heard that before? Everything rests on the tip of motivation. The interesting idea about this uh, proverb is that really the heart of everything kind of stems from your motivation. Why are you motivated to do what you do? But obviously, for most of us, we would know that motivation can be a tricky thing, right? Some of us have a hard time getting out of bed. Some of us might have a hard time working out, exercising. Other of us might have challenges in other areas. And so when you start to think about motivation and you start to think that everything rests on it, it probably begs you to ask the question, uh, how do you have it? How do you get more of it? If we want more, we want more and more and more of it because it will lead us potentially where we want to go, right? And so the big challenge is for all of us, I think, what, what really creates, drums up, develops motivation? And as a society, we've spent millions of dollars trying to answer this question. What are the things that trigger you or motivate you to do whatever it is you do? Last week, we looked at a video of two guys climbing the Don Wall. What would motivate them to do that? What would motivate anyone to do that, honestly? My hands were sweating the whole time I was watching the video. I was like, man, that's crazy. Or what would motivate someone to eat McDonald's for a month straight just to be in a documentary, right? Why? Or what would motivate someone to run a marathon? And then for those of you that have run marathons, to run ultra marathons. Like what motivates us to do that? What motivates us to get off the couch, to eat healthy, to do any of those things? This week I've been asking the question, what would motivate a teacher to wear the same outfit for his yearbook photo every year for 40 years? I don't know if you heard about this guy. His name's Dale, I believe, Dale Irby, physical education teacher. This is him in 1972, right there, rocking it. And here's what happened. The first year, he wore that outfit. The second year, he accidentally wore the same outfit. And he realized when he got home, he's like, oh, man, I wore the same thing I wore a year ago. But that's okay because it's still in style. I mean, he's rocking this, like, disco look or whatever. And then he decided, he was kind of challenged, I bet you couldn't do that for five years, and he was like, okay. So uh, here's a, a few more, I skip a couple years every time, um, he keeps going, you can scroll through them, yeah. He just continues to rock the same look, wearing the same outfit, we're into the, into the 80s now, still rocking it, yep, <laughs> keep going. I'll just give you a few more here. I love, uh, get, go, go one more here. I think it's one more. I love how, yeah, and uh, he's getting close to retirement here. He's rocking the glasses in the last one right there. Look at that. So that's his final picture, uh, 40 years. Go ahead and show the next slide. This is all 40 of them lined up together. <laughs> right? <laughs> so what would motivate someone to do that? Is a physical education teacher, um, Prestonwood Elementary near Dallas, and for 40 years he decided to rock the same outfit for the yearbook photo, right? So we have to ask the question, what motivates us to do what we do? Why do we do it? And um, what I want you to do is just talk to a neighbor here, 
for just a minute and to come up with what are some of the factors that motivate people to do what they do. All right? So collectively put your uh, wisdom, your thinking together and come up with a few factors. Why do we do what we do? What motivates us to do it? All right? Go ahead. Turn to your neighbor. I'll give you about a minute to talk. All right? Uh, You tell me, what are some of the things that you would say motivate people? What motivates us to do what we do? Toss out some answers. Yeah. Self-improvement. Okay, good. What else? Simplicity. What are some other factors that motivate us? Fear. Fear, good. What, someone else over here? I didn't hear it, I'm sorry. Recognition. Okay, good. Love. Sense of progress. Guilt. Your mom. Good. Good. Tribute to moms right there. Excellent. Any other factors stand out? Money. Okay. There's all, I mean, we could keep listing. We could keep listing factors. But one of the things that I think is interesting is that uh, money or rewards is often one that we kind of put at the top. More and more research is indicating that rewards aren't really an an exceptionally good motivator in the long term, right? They might have a short-term immediate motivation, but in the long term, you take away the reward, basically people stop working. Basically people say, well, I'm not really interested in that thing anymore. They've even done studies where you line two things up, you give one group just an overwhelming sense of why they should do what they do, and then you have another group a sense of like, there will be a reward. It's either promised or it comes as you perform the task. And over and over, research begins to show that those that have this overwhelming sense of why they do it actually work harder, have a greater sense of awareness, understand all of the pieces, maybe think outside the box, all the things related to true, true long-term motivation. So I was doing some research, and uh, I wanted to give you what are historically known as maybe the top three motivators. Top three motivators. Many of you said things that would be classified or grouped into these motivators. I'll explain why these are important here in a moment. Uh, First one is this, and again, everyone is motivated differently, but the first one is story or purpose. Research shows that the more you connect as an individual to a story or to a purpose outside of yourself that's bigger than yourself, that's this grand idea, the more motivated you are to live into whatever it is you're pursuing, right? When we realize in the body of Christ that we're not just an individual, but that we're tied to a collective but then beyond that, we're tied to a worldwide body of Christ that changes perspective. So story or purpose. Another one is progress or mastery. I think someone said like slowly improving or uh, increasing your ability in something. So they say that one of the single most significant factors in motivation is the ability to see that you've been progressing. This is why video games are built off that system, right? You got from level one to level two, or you got X amount of money to the next amount of money um, to the next prize or whatever it is, right? And we create all these little ways 
of determining. We take before and after pictures, right? We, we do all these little things to help us see what is the progress or how are we gaining a better mastery at the thing we're pursuing. And the last one of the top three is feelings. So this is where many of you are shouting things out like love or passion or fear or maybe jealousy, uh, revenge. All of those kinds of things fit into the category of feelings, right? So emotions are a motivating factor. They're a reason why we uh, maybe pursue something. So these three big ideas, right? Story or purpose, that we're connected to something bigger than ourselves. Progress, that we're improving in an area or Lastly, feelings. And the reason I bring these three up is because I think in a unique way, the text that we're going to be looking at this morning really highlights these exact three things in one particular verse. Uh, I want you to turn, if you would, with me to Romans chapter 12. We are uh, going to be looking at Paul, and he's speaking specifically to this idea of motivation. And what he's addressing is motivation related to our faith. What are some of the baseline motivations that cause us to maybe pursue Christ, to, to recognize a need for faith, to live out uh, loving our enemy or loving our neighbor or living in holiness? All of these things are motivated by something, and what Paul tries to do is get at this motivation. Uh, so for those of you who are either new or have been tracking with us for a while, we have just wrapped up. The book of uh, Revelation specifically focused on the seven letters and uh, are now moving into a new series on Romans. But Romans, specifically chapter 12. Instead of us going through the whole book and taking like nine years to do it, we decided we would just look at one particular chapter and uh, try to lean into what is this chapter communicating to us about our faith. Because We have a strong belief that faith is not just an idea, it is something to be practiced, right? And so Romans 12 really speaks into this idea that the good news of Jesus, the gospel, is an event that happened, and that reality should affect everything about our lives. And so Romans 12 is, all the information leading up to it is, this is the event that has affected your life, and now Romans 12, the hinge is, now, how does that translate into how you live. So Paul says this in Romans 12. If you're at uh, there, verse 1, it says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now if we're doing a simple English lesson, we would say, what is the primary idea in this verse? What is the big idea? The big idea would be present your bodies. Offer your life. Your very body, give it away to Christ. Offer it as a sacrifice, right? That's the central idea. But Paul, at the very beginning of the verse, gets to why would you do that? What would motivate you to actually give away your life? What would motivate you to say that my entire life is an offering And God, you can do whatever you want with it. Whatever you want with me, whenever you want it, all of it is yours. What would motivate someone to do that? And that's what I think Paul gets at this morning. And he does it with three primary ideas. The first one is the word therefore. First motivator is the word therefore. Now that doesn't seem like uh, much of a great motivator. 
But uh, here's, here's the big idea. Therefore is a word that has history, right? Anytime you hear the word therefore, you start to ask the question, or you should, what are, what are we talking about here? If, uh, if I'm in a conversation, and I'm talking with a friend of mine, and you walk up, and you hear me passionately say, therefore we need, and you hear that part, obviously you realize you've entered into the conversation a little bit late, Right? You missed something. There's history that you've got to like capture in order to get what I'm passionate about or what I'm communicating. And so in this particular case, what Paul is doing is saying, hey, you've missed one of the primary motivators, that you are connected to a story that's bigger than yourself. That's what this ver- therefore is describing, and it does it in two ways. The first way is this. This therefore is a hinge in the book of Romans, The first 11 chapters are all about doctrine and theology, all about uh, us and our place or our standing before God. And then chapters 12 through 16 are all about practice. This is how you live out that theology, right? So the first 11, doctrine and theology, the second few chapters are really about ethics, our lifestyle, the way we practice what it is we believe. But the other interesting thing that this word therefore does is it ties to it like a central theme throughout the book of Romans. For those of you who study uh, books of the Bible, you want to look for key ideas throughout, right? And one of the key ideas is this word, therefore, that springs up at very crucial, crucial times in the book of Romans. Let me give you a couple of them, because this, therefore, is the third big one. First one, first therefore is this. Romans 5, 1-2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Here's this, the big idea behind this, therefore. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are in good standing with him. Plain and simple. That you are at peace with God. That you are able to stand, as the text says, in grace. That you can stand before God with complete approval, being viewed as a son or a daughter of Christ, based on the work of Jesus to bring us to that place, right? And so we can stand before God Rejoicing in hope, as the text says. And so you see this movement throughout the scripture going, man, let me, let me introduce you to where you stand. And then he comes to the second therefore, which is in Romans chapter 8. Many of you are familiar with this. You probably memorized this particular verse. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what Paul has been saying in this whole book up to this point, to chapter 8, is that God shows you that Jesus died for you, that the Spirit resides within you, that you are among those who have been called, you're among those who have been justified, you're among those who are waiting to be glorified or to be made completely holy, completely blameless, right? All of those things were happening, and he's saying right now, at present, if you are that person I'm describing, then you are in Christ. You're secure in Him. That you can stand before Him with who are free of blame, free of disapproval, 
And all of that is motivated by a story of the person of Jesus Christ. And so what this therefore in Romans 12 is describing is that you are tied to a story, one of the top three motivators, that is far bigger than yourself. That you are tied in to the person and work of Jesus and his life that he lived for you. And that changes everything. That's the first motivator. The second motivator is this. Paul says, I appeal to you. I urge you. I encourage you. I'm like challenging you in this idea. I want you to get this, is essentially what he's saying. And many of those words on there are interchangeable. For us to understand that what Paul is doing is he's pushing us or urging us toward a particular thing. And again, motivation is tied to this idea that you can improve, right? So Paul is saying, in many ways, that what he is urging us toward is something that we're capable of. I'm urging you toward something, and you're going to see what it is later on, right, as we get into offering your bodies. He's urging you toward something that each of us is capable of doing, that each of us will progressively increase our ability in. And at the core of that, what he's urging us toward is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And this is where I think in our society and maybe in contemporary Western Christianity, we maybe have missed the idea of what the good news is. I think for many of us, the good news has simply become or been perceived by us as an optional idea for us to either choose to accept or not to accept. Right? I think many of us have been taught that. That, hey, there's this story about Jesus and you can decide if you want it or if you don't want it. You can try it on for size, maybe even. You could say, well, you know, I, I don't know if I'm inclined to accept that. Thanks for the offer, right? Or we see it as a piece of advice. So I can choose to adhere to it or not to adhere to it, to understand it or not understand it. But here's the interesting thing about news when something's news, it happened, right? Irregardless of, or regardless of whether you accept it or not, whether you want to adhere to it or not, whether you believe in it or not, it doesn't matter. It's news. News of something that already happened. And so here's the beautiful thing. It doesn't matter what your opinion is of it. It doesn't matter whether or not you desire to take that on. It's still truth. It's still reality. And so you're still faced with either accepting it or not. It's still good news, regardless of whether or not you buy in, right? And I think we've got to understand that that's why Paul speaks with the urgency he speaks with. Like, this happened. You need to understand it. It will keep moving forward. It will keep presenting a new reality, whether or not you're on board. Because it's news, And so he speaks with incredible urgency in the text. He's almost begging us. I remember a time where uh, it was kind of seared into my mind, a time where my father was urgent, begging, pleading, encouraging me. And uh, it was when I was coming home from the fair. I was four and a half years old. And uh, we we went to the fair as a family. It was... Probably an amazing time. I don't remember all the details. I probably got sick on cotton candy or something. But 
went to the fair, and what I do remember is that there were all these little contests you could play, and you could win prizes, and that was like my favorite thing. Four and a half, and so I'm like throwing little things and trying to land them on bottles or whatever, and trying, like I want that stuffed animal, that thing's going to be the best thing ever, I'll keep it my entire life, right? All those things we say to ourselves. And so uh, I remember at some point, I don't know how much money my parents had to spend, but finally, I won the stuffed animal. I thought it was the best thing. And I also, throughout the night, we had won, this was back in the day, Coke bottles, Pepsi bottles, glass. Uh, I won two of those. So we drive home. This is just outside of Scranton, Pennsylvania. We drive home, and uh, we park. And uh, we lived at the time, my parents worked at a college uh, for their, their whole career. And uh, we lived in the dorm for the first five years of my life. And so I had like 65 brothers, right? And me and like 65 guys in this dorm and my parents. And uh, so we get there to the dorm and we lived on the second floor of the dorm. And so there's like 12 steps going up to uh, that, that kind of level of the dorm. And um, I get out of the car and I had a Coke bottle in each hand and I had my stuffed animal. And I was loving it. And my dad said to me, I remember him specifically saying, hey, do you need help with that? And I was like, no, I got this. Nobody's taking this. You know, it's mine. I earned it. This is so cool. So uh, my mom goes in. My dad is carrying a bunch of other stuff. And we're walking up the steps. And I get to the very top of the steps. And I, you know where it's going. I trip right on the last step. And as I trip, I drop both bottles, right? Both bottles hit the ground and shatter. And then I land directly on top of the bottles, right? But I didn't want my stuffed animal to get wet. Yeah. So what I'm doing is I'm like trying to figure out how to keep the stuffed animal up. And I'm just like, I'm laying on all the soda pop and all the glass. And I'm trying to get the stuffed animal from getting wet. I don't want him to be sticky, right? I don't know why, I'm four and a half, right? It made sense to me then. And my dad is standing behind me on the steps saying, get up, get up. And I'm still struggling to save teddy bear or whatever. And he's yelling at this point, like, stand up, leave the doll alone, like, just be done with it, get up, get up. Finally, whatever he had in his hand, he just dropped it, reached and just lifted me straight up. And up came my teddy bear with me. And 12 inch cut right up my arm. But I remember him yelling, like urgently begging, pleading with me, do this, do this, do this. And what I couldn't do for myself, ultimately he just reached into the situation and said, I'll do it for you. And what Paul is saying here is, I, I appeal, I urge you, I, I'm like my dad screaming at you to get something. And what he's asking us to get is what my father did for me. And that is that he demonstrated mercy, right? So Paul says in this text, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God. This is the third idea. The third motivator, the mercy of God. 
So mercy of God could probably be best described as pity. My father looked down on me with pity. Look at that little four-year-old. Look at what he's doing. He won't get up. He's injuring himself. And I will reach into the situation and I'll do something for someone who can't do it for themselves. And that's what mercy is describing. It's a pity. It's a, a sense of recognizing that there's a, there's a tender-hearted compassion for those who are helpless. And the text says that God is full of mercy, right? That, that he's begging us to understand the mercies of God. Now, I think it, it would be good for us just for a moment to consider the difference between grace and mercy. A lot of times when I hear people talk about grace and mercy, they kind of lump it all together. God is loving, graceful, and merciful. Like, just throw it all together. It's one big thing. It'll be good, right? But grace really emphasizes the idea of assistance to someone who's undeserving, or it, it describes God's attitude towards people who are lawbreakers or to those who are rebellious, right? Mercy is different in that it emphasizes relief or drawing you out of an unfortunate situation, or it describes God's compassion and heart and attitude to those who are suffering or distressed. So it's like those that he has pity on, those that he looks at and goes, man, they are helpless and in need. Those are the ones that I'm going to reach in and rescue. You see it all throughout the scriptures. Romans 5 would be an example. He says this, For while we were still weak, helpless, unfortunate, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One would scarcely die for a righteous person, or perhaps for a good person, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still helpless and unfortunate and in need and weak, Christ died for us. Another one. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Paul Tillich describes it this way. He says this. It strikes us, speaking of mercy, When we walk through the valley of a meaningless and empty life, it strikes us when year after year the longed-for perfection does not appear, when the old compulsions reign within us as they have for decades, when despair destroys all joy and courage. Sometimes at that moment a wave of light breaks into our darkness, and it is as though a voice were saying, You are accepted. You are accepted. Accepted by that which is greater than you in the name of which you do not know. Do not ask for the name now. Perhaps you will find it later. Do not try to do anything now. Perhaps you will do much, or perhaps later you'll do much. Do not seek for anything. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. That is the idea of the mercy of God. Really, this idea of accepting mercy, you hear throughout the church history the phrase, Lord have mercy. Many uh, whole hymnals start with a song, Lord have mercy. Much of what we utter as followers of Christ is, Lord have mercy. And what that means is that our identity is totally one of receiving we receive something that there's no way we could do on our own. And so my invitation to you this morning is to accept mercy. 
to allow these things we've just been describing to be motivators to present your life, to receive this gift. And what we're going to do in the next few moments is enter into a time where we will receive the body and the blood of Christ. And this uh, sacrament, I believe, is essential or central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to understand our life and how it's directly tied or related to him. And I think it's an invitation to stand simply accepting mercy. And so this morning, I encourage you that as you take communion, as you enter into the Lord's Supper, to view it as a gift. To recognize that you stand there kind of like I did, in the glass, in the brokenness, holding on to the stuffed animals of your life, and needing rescue, right? And into that, Jesus came and offered it. And it's good news, whether you want to accept it or not. But my encouragement to you is to accept it, to live into it, to understand it. For those of you that have never received that mercy, it waits for you. It calls you and invites you to come. We uh, enter into Lent this Wednesday. And what better way to enter into it than to repent? today, to turn and say, I need mercy. And when you ask for it, that is when you find it. If you desire to talk about that at some point, I would love to do that with you. But in these next few moments, let's partake together. John and the group are coming, and uh, they're going to lead us in another time of worship and song. Let me pray for us that we would uh, further understand these motivations. Father, we are grateful that you motivate. And what is so fascinating to me as I was studying this passage and recognizing what are the things that motivate us the most as humans, that um, even in these, the very first section of this first verse, that all of the greatest motivators for us are found in it. That we are connected to a story that is far bigger than our own because we're connected to you and that we are urged or we are given an appeal, like a challenge, an encouragement to live into something that we can continue to grow into, to continue to see progress in. And then, God, this true understanding that, that we live in your mercy, that these emotions well up inside when we recognize that it is only by your mercy, your rescue of us, that we stand in grace. Thank you for your son. Thank you for his sacrifice. And may we rejoice as we uh, take communion now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.